And I'm Rebecca Lair, and we are the Mashup Americans. This is the show for people who don't quite realize how American they are until they go to their mother country. Mm, I can relate. I think I was maybe in high school when I was, like, pretty into being Korean. But then we went to Korea, and I just I have such a memory of being so jet-lagged, walking, and my aunt being like, welcome to our home, go rest, go rest. And I, like, went into the bedroom, and there was no bed. What was there? Oh, no, um, a mat and this, like, square pillow, but it was was hard. You're like, I'm an American teen in the 90s, so what I really need is a pillow with NKOTB picture on it. Oh, God, you know me so well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was definitely the American in you. So, you know, our guest today, Ai-jen Poo, has a very good story about going to elementary school in Taiwan in the summers. And then they also believed in spanking in the classroom. And I remember the first time I saw a teacher, like, actually physically, like, spank a kid. I ran home to my grandmother and was like, Child abuse is happening in the schools. She's you like, know? relax, American girl. <laughs> totally. She was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> oh, she definitely showed some of her American men. But <laughs> Well, you know, we've never actually talked about spanking on our show and def not about spanking in school. Because, by the way, 19 states in the U.S. still allow corporal punishment in school, which is mm, a bummer. Hi, Jen. We're going we're gonna to take that on next. Yeah, just adding that to all of our to-do lists, because as you can probably tell from that clip, Ai-jen has been an advocate for people her entire life. The first time the general public might have heard of her was when she attended the Golden Globes with Meryl Streep last year. But she's been an activist for more than two decades. Oh, and she's a MacArthur genius also. <laughs> also, just tack that, that on. Ai-jen uh, is the director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, and she has one singular goal, which is to center and create more value around care in this country. This goal has manifested in working for and winning advancements in rights for domestic workers in eight states. And this year, she has helped create legislation that is being introduced on a federal level to protect domestic workers across the country, which, by the way, the legislation has backing by Kamala Harris. Yes, it does. This work that she is doing is important for so many reasons. The stats out there are insane. So over two million women are employed to care for our nation's homes and families. And these women have traditionally been exempt from the labor laws that protect workers in other industries in the country. And we know that many caregivers are immigrant women and women of color, meaning that they are already in vulnerable populations. Yes. 70 percent of these women are not making minimum wage and 65 percent of them do not have any sort of health insurance compared with 9 percent of uninsured people in our overall population, which is crazy. I mean, who's taking care of the people who take care of us? Right. Well, I, Jen, for one, and all of the incredible people that are part of the various organization that she helps run. Aijin is also so much more than her work. She has a deep love of her family and Taiwanese heritage, which was instilled in her by her grandparents from a very early age. (laughs) 
What is your Baba Misa, which is like an old wives' tale from your culture that maybe you don't totally believe, but actually you secretly do? If you don't eat all the rice in your bowl, you'll get a lot of zits. That's why I always eat all the rice in my bowl. <laughs> Wait, I'm going to say that every time. That's why I'm picking them the last grains, like one finger tip at a time. What is your favorite language to swear in? English. It's very strong. I mean, it's also, it's it's very strong, very compelling. And my grandparents taught me Chinese. So I think the swears that I know in Chinese are like, you ugly turtle. <laughs> you know, they're like not very, you know. <laughs> you go to your, you talk to your, your Chinese born and raised family and they're like, that's not a thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why are you cursing from the 1940s? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you old so-and-so. <laughs> How do you mash up? You know, I love the concept of mashup so much on so many levels. One, because I have a hyphen in the middle of my name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I feel like my whole thing you is are a mashup. A pr- you are a hyphen. <laughs> I am a hyphen, uh, Yeah, basically. hell yeah. I am like a mashup of so many different influences and cultures. And I was raised heavily by my grandparents who are from Taiwan and mainland China. They migrated from China to Taiwan in the 40s and then came to live with us when they retired in the United States. But I went and spent every summer with them as a child and lived with them from six months old to when I was old enough for preschool. So like my first language, my first, you know, my grandmother potty trained me, which was definitely useful um (laughs) i feel like that happens early in china is that like yeah because in my experience traveling in china i was like okay i like this (laughs) if i like could get my look at all those little butts exposed so many little buttons on the back of the pants oh yeah it's just like this is what we're doing yeah this is what we're We're not messing with this totally diaper nonsense (laughs) yeah and there's no at the time when i was little the toilets weren't a thing yeah there's just like a hole in the ground and everybody just squats and which is very perfect for a child it is yeah actually it was good i don't think i realized that at the time but it ended up being easier for everyone involved were you the eldest child and did any of your siblings get sent to taiwan to be with your grandparents and raised by them well so, yes, I'm the oldest child. There's two girls. My sister's four years younger than me. And she also, in summers, she came with me to Taiwan. But I was the one who was there from six months to two-ish, almost three. Because when my mom had me, she was a graduate student. And she was on her own in Pittsburgh. My dad lived in Baltimore where he was in school. And she was on her own studying chemistry, learning English, working, assistant teaching, all the things. And having a kid was just too much. She was the only person in her class who Mm. had a baby. So, you know, even though her classmates were really helpful, like when she actually went into labor, it was her classmates who like found her, took her to the hospital and stayed with her through labor. But it just was too much. So she basically called up my grandma and said, I'm going to send my girl. <laughs> and it ended up being a huge blessing for me. Yeah. It sounds like it's really a positive experience. You know, we talk about caregiving in so many different ways, and we'll get into that. But in this experience, is there is there any trauma or is there any of, like, separation from your parents so early or because of the setup that's not 
how it's informed you in your DNA? It never felt like there was any trauma, honestly. Like, I I love, like, being with my grandmother is the closest thing to feeling like I'm home. Mm. You know, wherever she is, is feels like home maybe for this reason, and I'm so grateful to have that. I do have funny memories, though, like in the summers when I would go, my Chinese obviously wasn't as good as the kids who were there. And school goes through the summertime, so my grandmother actually put me in school in Taiwan, but a grade lower than I would be in in the U.S. So I would have to go as a second grader to the first grade classroom, and I was like a head taller than everybody <laughs> And the other kids would pee their pants during nap time, and I'd just be so insulted, and it would be so (laughs) undignified. And then they also believed in spanking in the classroom. And I remember the first time I saw a teacher, like, actually physically, like, spank a kid, I ran home to my grandmother and was like, child abuse is happening in the school. She's like, relax, American girl. (laughs) Totally. She was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Sounds right. So that was kind of your immersion from, I don't know, I'm using my air quotes, west to east. Yeah. What was your life like when you were with your parents in America during the the rest of the year? Yeah. So, and where were you? So you were born in Pittsburgh. You go to Taiwan for a couple of years. Yep. And then you come back and and you're where where did you guys sort of land? So we landed in Irvine, California, in Orange County from when I was three to 12. And then we moved to New Haven, Connecticut. And in Irvine, all of my friends and all of my parents' friends were Asian Asian immigrants. And so I basically only hung out with people who looked like me. And then when we moved to New Haven, there was not an Asian for miles. Like I also lived in New Haven. Did you really? I went to Yale for graduate school. <laughs> And I would have said the same thing about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then your grandparents from Taiwan joined you in New Haven? Uh-huh. That's right. Mm-hmm. So you kind of always had this continuous line with your extended family and like the different layered generations. That's right. And what did you call your grandma and grandpa? On my mom's side, Popo and Gong Gong. And on my dad's side, Ye Ye and Nai Nai. Wait, did all four of them come? At different times. Oh, I wow. was so lucky. I mean, it, yeah. So I think this is this, an experience that that to me, when I talk to like my white American friends, they're like, they lived with you? What? <laughs> How did everybody fit? Your, ev- your aunt? And I'm like, yeah. Like people came, they stayed. Me and my sister, we slept in the same bed. That's just like what you did. Yeah. And I, I like it really took well into adulthood for me to realize that this was a mashy experience or this was an immigrant experience. Mm-hmm. Totally. Mm-hmm. Did you have an understanding then that it was unusual or because you had such a strong influence of Chinese or Asian culture in your life that it was just like what people did? Well, I knew that it was unusual because, you know, starting from 12, we were in New Haven and not only was it mostly white people around us, but it was like a very particular kind of Mm -hmm. New England, Connecticut, white culture that felt really foreign and was hard for me to adjust to really. I remember... You're like, you came on the Mayflower? (laughs) (laughs) It was definitely shocking, you know? And my teachers also didn't know what to do with me. And my mom used to get into fights with them all the time. 
for different reasons. But so I knew it was different and special, but I also never felt ashamed about it. Mm. And and it was, there were aspects of culture where I, I did feel shame, like a, the difference meant was associated with negativity. But for me with the grandparents, it was like there was always somebody to pick me up. There was always amazing food mm. in the house and like somebody to snuggle with, you yeah. know, and my grandfather is was a Tai Chi instructor. And so just one of my favorite things to do was to watch him do his Tai Chi in the morning from my bedroom window. And so it's just like it was such a part of what I loved about my life yeah. that I I don't think I ever associated it with anything negative. Well, it's just wonderful to have such I mean, I think in 67 episodes, something like something that. like that. And in the work that we do, you know, the range of pride and shame that That's we're all always, navigating. Yeah. That's right. And I, it's so important to us to kind of dig into. Yeah. And I think it's never that interesting if somebody never gets to the point of pride. Right. Like if they never do, you're like, OK, well, you need to figure out that this is cool. <laughs> Otherwise, the, you're like by definition a mashup, but you're not you're not of us. Right. But there's different ways in which like some of us have more friction right. earlier on right. within ourselves than others. Yeah. And it's like, I think really wonderful. I, there seems to me maybe a, a way in which this has informed your work because it's always come from a sense of pride. Right. Like it's like so deeply in who you are. Do, would you Definitely. S- yeah. The grandparent thing, absolutely. I mean, I can't imagine who I would be if I hadn't spent all that time with my grandparents, and each of them have given me such different gifts. But there were definitely things, you know, that I felt ashamed about, or, you know, I definitely felt like I didn't fit in all the time, and that I was unattractive, and that my, you know, and and some of that, too, was reinforced by my grandparents, where they were like, you know, your nose is too flat, or maybe one day you'll get eye surgery, or, you know, that, that kind oh, of that stuff. Oh, that old game. <laughs> you know Wait, this What's game. the double eyelid surgery you, called? I can't remember. Whatever. On <laughs> monolid. On <laughs> monolid, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You're you know. so beautiful. Except if you were skinnier. Right. <laughs> exactly. Classic move. <laughs> Except if you had a totally different nose. Yeah. Just be a different person. You'll be great. <laughs> did your sister, ha- and not you, you don't have to speak for her, but did she have a similar relationship to your grandparents and to this? Yes. And she and my grandpa in particular were BFFs. I mean, they were like a permanent fixture at the Burger King near my house. Like, <laughs> the two of them. And, and they, the three of us, but especially the two of them, Wheel of Fortune every night. Like, oh, my God. It was like the ritual. Have you, now that you spent time in L.A., are you like, I got to meet Pat Sajak? I mean, definitely. And <laughs> I, every time I see Pat Sajak, I miss my grandpa. Yeah. You know, it's a thing. Well, so I would love to, you know, now like dive into the work. So it, it makes so much sense now that the work that you're doing is driven by such like a personal passion. Yeah. When did you first start thinking about caregiving and domestic work as where you were going to center your energies? And was there a direct line from your family experience to that? Or was there a specific experience that 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 got you there? 
Well, what's so interesting about even the story of how I got here is kind of a mashy story in that I actually started out doing feminist activism in high school and and then in college. And, and that was because I actually saw patriarchy in Chinese culture, like in my family mm-hmm. and in the in our culture that it just made me angry, you know? So I joined the women's forum in high school and I, I was a women's studies major in college and, and I started volunteering at a domestic violence shelter when I was in college in New York city for Asian immigrant women. And I could volunteer there because I spoke Mandarin Mm -hmm. because of my grandparents and I worked the hotline. So I would answer the phone through the night if people called and were in situations of abuse and needed support. And it was like a lot of women called because they were in crisis. And then there was this kind of persistent crisis that was about economic security for Mm. women. Like so much of what they were dealing with was the pressures of working, having to start on your own, like leaving an abuser, figuring out what to do with your kids, if you can actually pay the bills on your own. And so many of them were working long hours, like 12, 14 hour days and not able to pay the rent or pay for childcare. And I was like, how is it that these women have like against all odds, right, left their abusers, trying to be good moms, working hard and still can't catch a break. Yeah. And so that's where I got into figuring out like what if jobs that women did could actually pay them a living wage? How as you were so young, right? You were in in college, you were Mm -hmm, saying? mm -hmm. How did you start to put together this through line? How did you start to realize like, oh, this is, what were the first moments where you're like, this person's talking about economic insecurity? Like, oh, you were connecting the dots there. I mean, I worked the hotline for a year before I really even understood like that there could be something we could do about the fact that women get such low pay. And so I was volunteering at an Asian community organization called the Committee Against Anti-Asian Violence. And a group of us volunteers decided to form a project to just talk to women who were working in low-wage jobs to see if they wanted to organize and do something about it. And it was always the domestic workers who came to the meetings and came to the health fairs. And I think it had to do with the isolation of Mm. working behind closed doors in someone else's home. And a lot of times nobody knows you work there except for them and you. And, and, you know, you could walk into any neighborhood and not know which homes are also workplaces. Right. Right. So there's just a really unique kind of isolation doing that work. And so they always wanted to come together and we just kind of started organizing. And I didn't even know what organizing was or even how to put together an agenda for a meeting. You know, we just kind of trusted each other and trusted the intention and and kept it going. Can you define, like, for our listeners, the broad swath of women who might fall under domestic workers? Yeah. So when we say domestic workers, we mean anyone who works in our homes doing caregiving or cleaning. So it's nannies, it's house cleaners, it's home care workers. And these are among some of the fastest growing occupations in our whole economy. Like, when I first started doing this work in the 90s, when I was in college, like, It was very much seen as a marginal shadow part of our economy. Mm -hmm. Today, when you look around, 
the conditions that define domestic work, like no job security, no access to benefits, no safety net, no training, no career pathways, low wages or unpredictable wages and hours, right? Those conditions describe more and more of the American workforce today. Mm. Like That's why we call domestic workers the original gig economy workers. It's like we've been dealing with this gig life forever. And um, and because there's this huge and growing older population with the baby boom generation aging into retirement at a rate of 10,000 people per day and um, people living longer than ever because of advances in healthcare, we're going to need a huge elder care workforce to support people we love, like my grandparents, to be able to live with dignity as they grow older. We're just not quite ready for it yet. And so the workforce is growing really quickly, and our families are changing. And I think this intergenerational way of life that Asians and other immigrant communities have kind of lived by all these years is going to increasingly become the future in this country. Right. I mean, so the the challenge that our culture is facing with making sure that domestic workers and caregivers are earning a living wage and, and that the industry is professionalizing and organizing in different ways. Is this a uniquely American problem because we don't have a culture of this intergenerational or as deep of one as, as there is around the rest of the world? Like here, we don't have villages to help raise our children. It's true. I mean, it's it's there's aspects of it that are uniquely American in that the history of how we've so devalued this workforce is very racialized. It's very much rooted in the fact that the first domestic workers were enslaved African women and our labor laws when they were put into place explicitly excluded domestic workers and farm workers because they were African-American at the time. Like mm. there's just a long history of racial exclusion that's really shaped how we marginalize and make this workforce vulnerable. But I will say that I think that around the world, this question hasn't been figured out of, it's always women, and it's often women who of marginalized social status who do this work, and they are never paid well, and they're never fully valued for the value they offer our families and our economy. And that is pretty universal. And that has to change in the 21st century because we need so much more care than is available to us. It's like an all-hands-on-deck situation. Right, right. <laughs> you know? Well, that's actually—I feel like the number one thing I, I say I learned is, like, the relentlessness of parenthood. Yes. Right? So it's just— There's no vacation. It's all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so that brings us to caregiving. Mm-hmm. And the same with elder care, right? So the— intensity of this work yeah and which should be very much more valued and at the same time it's hard to figure out how to do it how to afford it how to how to make it happen as, oh yeah as the patron i don't know what, what yeah. the fuck employer employer you yeah. know it's totally it's a mess yeah <laughs> like it's a complete mess because this whole part of our economy which for shorthand we'll call it the care economy this whole part of our lives Right, which has real economic implications, like every part of our life, is has been relegated to the realm of like women's responsibility mm-hmm. and therefore made invisible, devalued, whatever. It's created this whole massive part of our life's 
experience that is just kind of chaotic. Like there's no rules. There's no guidelines. We call it the wild west of care. Basically, you're just like, oh, what do I do? And a lot of people want to do the right thing. And it's actually really hard to figure out what that is. How many text messages and emails and like, what do you pay? And then it's like a a survey of five people and you realize how much information is lacking and how much your personal networks matter and what what you learn about proper care or properly dealing with somebody and the respect. We've talked, Amy and I talk, I mean, we t- we spend probably an hour a day, <laughs> not, not not a joke, talking about somehow related to caregiving. Yeah. Well, also because we're business partners and friends and we run a business, we have staff and people that are that we are responsible for as well. Right. And we can't do basic parts of our work unless we have first managed. Exactly. The, and like, you know, and both of us have equal partners in this. And it's I as much time as I spend talking to Rebecca about how we're going to get through the day, I spend talking to my husband about how we're going to get through the day. Yep. Yep. Yeah. No, it's that's why we call care the work that makes all of their work possible. Right. Right. Because without that first layer of whoever your care squad is, we need a little bit more of a sense of order or logic or guidance in terms of how to handle these relationships because they're only going to get more complex. Like right now you're dealing with children, this whole phenomenon of the sandwich generation where people are dealing with managing care for small kids and their aging parents Mm -hmm. who have Alzheimer's. And it's just like, we call it the panini effect because you're just like squeezed between the pressures Mm -hmm. of care on both ends of the generational spectrum. And it's hard enough, let alone how expensive it is. Mm -hmm. When I think about your work and I think about the complexities of all of the things that we bring with us into any sort of care relationship, much less a paid and Uh professional care relationship, all I can think of is like, like it needs a revolution. Like it, it all needs to change because the incremental steps, like pulling one lever over another and then trying to understand like the dynamics of this thing or, you know, in the in the umbrella of people that you are advocating for, everybody, there's so many different types of people mm-hmm. and all of mm. their cultural backgrounds, mm-hmm. they're all coming into it. So I wonder, you know, as you're organizing I'm assuming primarily women, mm-hmm. you know, how do you need to cater the either the message or the organizing to immigrants from like the Philippines or from the Guatemala or from, you know, or Eastern somebody Europe who's been here from... um, a long time, many years versus somebody who like there's a huge Filipino caregiving population in California, at least, yeah. who are coming here for this work. Right. And which is another kind of is different relationship to the U.S. and to what they're whether they have communities here and stuff. So yep. yeah, h- how are you communicating differently to these different constituencies? It is a challenge, but you would be surprised. I mean, the the level of pride that people take in doing this work, like knowing that they're playing a role in nurturing the potential of a child, yeah. or you know, upholding the dignity of an older person. Like people really take pride in it and it's a huge source of connection across difference. And this is where I just am so, I really believe that care 
and caregiving could save the soul of the country. <laughs> yes. Because everybody has people that in their lives that they care about or they worry about how they're going to get the care they need. It like it totally connects us in this very deep, as you said, emotional way. Now, there are really important differences, obviously, across all of us. But in my movement, you know, you have African-American women who have been here for generations and many of them have like family who've done domestic work for generations um, beginning from slavery and have seen the generations of racial exclusion and been kind of on the front lines of that. Others who just came here, you know, six months ago or two years ago, more likely three years ago from the Philippines, left their own children to come here to work, to care for somebody else's children, to send money back. And they're part of a global care train, right, that's happening. So practically speaking, it's about, you know, making sure that every one of our meetings actually has simultaneous interpretation in at least seven different languages. We actually talk a lot about that on the front end. Like, what does it mean to have a space where everyone, regardless of where you're from, like this is a mashy space. Yeah. And so what does that mean we all have to bring to it? You right. Know, in terms of awareness and creating space for each other and supporting each other and then really celebrating it. Like talent night at our annual <laughs> meetings is like the most popular thing. Everybody, like people actually like make special costumes for it. People practice in advance and like rehearse. Like it's a big thing. I mean, let's be, thing. mashups do love a performance. It's, they do. Like a Filipino dance performance at like a birthday celebration is, is beyond. Nuts. Beyond. <laughs> nuts. All the way. And I fucking love it. I can also imagine like the competitiveness that would come from like a potluck. Right. Being like, oh, no, no, no my no, dish no, has no. been completely eaten. Totally. <laughs> but there, there is something you're saying here, which I, I, I would love to dive into more. And, and this is this pride. And like there's a way and it's not that it's it's that culturally we have dismissed this work in terms of pay and what have you, what have you. And literally everything else. <laughs> <laughs> but that actually there's a deep professionalism. There is. And in talking, I'm, I'm curious to know how you've. Because you're, um, it's not like the workers aren't professional. It's that the larger world is not recognizing right. them as professional. Right. So as you're institutionalizing this or like creating structures around this, yep. can you give us an example of something that you're like that is happening, and I believe that is something we could make into something a larger institutional thing, so that a we can communicate this better, help people understand it's a thing that they're doing and they can own. And then finally, like, help the people who are paying, the employers, understand that this is a value that is here that you should be paying for. Mm. The way that we started our campaign, which is called Caring Across Generations, yeah. is because a bunch of the house cleaners and nannies in our membership were starting to be asked by the families that they work for to provide elder care. And they didn't feel prepared to do that work because it was so different from, I mean, cleaning and childcare is very different from taking care of somebody with Alzheimer's, for example, right? And so they came to the alliance and said, you know, we would love training in elder care and that like how to support somebody who just got released from having surgery, how to support somebody who has dementia, you know, basic things like that. And we were like, wow, this is such an interesting pattern that this is happening. 
And what we realized when we started trying to understand the context is that like there's this massive growing older population and families are kind of trying to figure out on their own how to care for their loved ones. And of course, they're going to go to the nanny or the house cleaner because that's who they rely on for family. Yeah, Yeah. you know. And so we did start the training in elder care. We now have home care training happening in like 10 cities. And we also launched this campaign to say, how do we prepare together as a country, as families and as workers for this growing need for elder care and see it as an opportunity to actually make these jobs good jobs Mm -hmm. while making it easier for families to find the support in the home they need. That's a great example because it's like Specific skills. And people identifying mm-hmm. it. They're, they're like, this is something I'm seeing in my work experience and identifying the patterns themselves. And it's a professional development. It is professional development. And, you know, just people who underestimate this work, you know, it's just I it, that's one thing I don't understand. It's like it is so difficult. To I mean, I get so angry and frustrated in my work day to day, but like you can't, if you're a caregiver, you can't do your job if you don't care about the person that you're caring for. You know what I mean? If uh, you don't love on some level, yeah. right? And the patience and the emotional labor and the... I mean, I cannot think of anybody I love more than my two kids and I cannot care for them. Oh my Those god! Ten hours a day. That you I'm know what like, I could I do? do? I could. <laughs> we talk about this a lot. I'm sorry to people who will be offended by this, but I'm not really sorry. <laughs> Is that I could definitely take a couple years off of working, <laughs> but only if I had full time childcare. <laughs> right. Well, we are running out of time, but we didn't even get to talk about what I will consider to be your big Oscar win. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations on Roma. Thank you. You're welcome. I will accept that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I just, uh, if we just have like a few minutes now to talk about like what that has meant for you and what the next steps are for the NDWA. So a couple of things. One is in terms of what's next for us. We've been working on state level bills of rights all over the country and eight states and the city of Seattle have passed domestic worker bills of rights or legislation to protect the rights of this workforce. And we just realized that it's time for there to be a national proposal that covers everyone in the country and is the fastest growing workforce. Two and a half million women do this work. Um, And so so Senator Harris and Congresswoman Jayapal will be introducing the legislation in the next two months. Wow. I know. We're kind of finalizing the language and getting all co-sponsors together. So it's it's really exciting, historic after, gosh, more than 80 years of exclusion from labor laws. We're finally getting recognized. Um, And then the other— I just got goosebumps all over. Also, I feel like uh, uh, I'm just—as you say that, I think about the times when— um, people get called out for where their lives um, don't correspond with their politics. Yeah, it's often in the domestic totally. sphere, right? Especially people who want to run for office, or and you're like, oh, well, it turns out I've been employing. It turns out <laughs> I, I I have really anti-immigrant sentiments, but I've been employing um, many, you know, people who are not may may not have. All of their papers. Oh, my God. This is the place where all the complex stuff comes out. Like when the when Texas 
passed an anti-immigrant law, basically criminalizing immigration. Cool. They made a carve out. The Republicans carved out the nannies and the house cleaners because they didn't want their nannies to get deported. Oh, my God. I can't breathe. <laughs> I mean, I so I'm so unbelievable. <laughs> can't you like, write? Can't even write that hell? story. <laughs> yes. Okay, so the other big thing we're working on is a portable benefits platform called oh. Aaliyah. Basically, we've been tinkering away building this portable benefits product for domestic workers to get access to benefits for the first time. So basically the way it works is you can go on myalia.org and you can sign your How house. How do you spell Aaliyah? A-L-I-A. Thank you. Um, and you can sign your house cleaner up for an account and you make a small contribution of $5 on top of every cleaning that she does and she can get contributions from all of her clients and they all go into her account and then she gets to decide what benefits she wants. She can apply it to paid time off or accident insurance, life insurance, disability, all kinds of insurance products that otherwise she would never get access to. Ijin, thank you so much. This thank was you. such a delight. This is so fun. Oh I could God. talk to you guys forever. Well, Let's do it again. We're gonna do, oh, we're gonna we do it all the time. We are going oh, to. Oh, totally. <laughs> Okay, I'm feeling fully inspired. So so much. I honestly find a way to slip in parts of this conversation. Every day since we in, in recorded this interview, I, I, I just talk about her all the time. I just feel <laughs> as a person, she was just so magnetic and just so brilliant. And I could talk about all of these things all the time, learning from her. So maybe that's coming next season. Just us and I, Jen. <laughs> one whole season. Just talk and I, Jen, the whole time. Yeah. That would be totally okay by me. Yeah. Well, so I hope you love this conversation as much as we did. If you are a caregiver and want to learn more about Aaliyah or about the Domestic Workers Bill of Rights, or if you're an employer and you want to get some guidance on how to be a better employer, go to domesticworkers.org. All the information is there. And we want to hear from you. We're all givers or receivers or employers of care in some way. So let us know how some of these issues play out in your lives. Hit us up on the socials or send us an email at yo at mashupamericans.com. Next episode, we have Fatima Asghar on the show. She's a poet and a writer and has a really solid checklist for how she defines success, which is something we're always obsessed with. There's that kind of three components that I think of when I think of something as successful. And one is like, did I show up and did I do my work and did I do it well, right? And then two, did I love my people? And three, did I, did I leave the kind of world or the thing that I was doing a, a slightly better or more just place. Our producer is Kara Hart. The show is executive produced by me, Rebecca Lair, and her, Amy Choi, and the Mashup Americans Creative Studio. Thanks to Shelby Sandlin for handling all the booking for this show. Our theme music is by DJ Rob Swift with additional music by A Lot Momin. Find us on social at Mashup American and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Thank you for listening. Peace. Peace.